You're listening to the teaching of Calvary Paris. For more information, go to www.calvaryparis.com. All right. We're going to move on to Philippians 2 now. First, we'll, we'll read through it together, and then we'll pray. So if you're ready, Paul begins saying, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy, being like-minded, having the same love, being of one of one accord of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others." Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and disputing that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason you also be glad and rejoice with me. But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus, but you know his proven character. That as a son with his father, he served with me in the gospel. Therefore, I hope to send him at once as soon as I see how it goes with me. But I trust in the Lord that I myself shall also come shortly. Yet I considered it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, but your messenger and the one who ministered to my need, since he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick, for indeed he was sick almost unto death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I sent him the more eagerly that when you see him again, you may rejoice and I may be less sorrowful. Receive him, therefore, in the Lord with all gladness and hold such men in esteem, because for the work of Christ, he came close to death, not regarding his life, to supply what was lacking in your service toward me. Okay, let's pray. Lord God, we just come before you, Father. Just so humbled to be in your presence, Lord. So grateful and thankful, God, that you've made us yours. You are the maker of the heavens and earth, God, and by your word, you hold all things together. Yet you've made us your daughters, Lord. Just pray now that you just be with us, that you be with me, Lord, that you empty me of anything that is not of you, Lord. And we just pray, God, 
that your word and your heart go forth, that you touch our hearts, Lord, that you pierce us with your truth, that you lead us into a deeper place with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so Paul begins with, in verse 1, therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, and if there's any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, any affection and mercy. And this word, if, is really better said since there is. He's not really questioning if we have that. He's saying since we have that, since we have consolation in Christ, and since we have comfort of love, and since we have fellowship of the Spirit and affection and mercy, Paul says, since we have these things, fulfill my joy. He says, complete my joy. Make my joy more full by having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. So because we have the things that we have in Christ, we can be these things is what Paul is saying to them. We can agree wholeheartedly with each other. We can love one another and be of one mind and one purpose. Since you have these things in Christ, have and exhibit this kind of unity among yourselves. This is the ultimate goal for the body of Christ. And Paul continues that the way of this kind of unity is to put in those next verses all selfish ambition and conceit away and let not what we do be out of selfish motives or selfish gain, what we can get from it. We can't have unity if we're looking out for ourselves. That defeats, it's it's self-defeating. We can't have those things. Yet that's really what we see in the world today, isn't it? We see our motives and our heart being self, and we see that everywhere that we turn to love yourself and I can't love you now. I have to learn to love myself first and I have to work on myself first. And and the things that we're taught to do is out of an attitude of making yourself happy, looking out for number one and promoting yourself and building up yourself. And, and everything is all about elevating and lifting ourselves. And Paul is saying that because of all that Christ has done for us, we should be like him. We should be lifting others up. We should be esteeming others over ourselves, looking out for the interests of others as we do our own. He doesn't say not to look out for our own interests, but to look out for the interests of others as we look out for our own, which is really familiar to us. Do unto others as you would do unto yourselves and look out for the interests of others as you would look out for your own. So we can gather that Paul and the Lord see that we can take care of ourselves very well. We think of ourselves very well. We tend to our interests very well. That's not where our struggle and our problem is. He says, let's die to that and be more concerned about others. Let's esteem them higher than we do ourselves. That's how we have this unity that Paul's talking about, the one mind and the one accord and the one purpose. We don't want to be like the world and be all about self, but to be about others. You know, we're really quick to look at the flaws in others, and we're really quick to ignore and brush off, even make excuses and justify our own 
because we, we know the things that lead us to feel the way that we feel, whatever's happened, whatever circumstances, so we can justify those things that we so easily look at others without knowing their hearts and without knowing what they've walked through and, and judge and make assumptions. And we're just so quick to do that when really we need to be quick to inspect ourselves. We need to be quick to look for our own flaws, to be gracious towards others while overlooking their faults. We're to esteem the good in others and be realistic and sober-minded about our own imperfections and our own unworthiness. This is how we set ourselves apart from the world. So then in verse 5, he goes on to tell us how we can do this, that it's this mind that Christ has that needs to be in us because we all know that we can't do this on our own. We all know as much as we strive and as much as we try, as much as we wake up in the morning, we get in the Word, we pray, we think we've got our hearts set right, we get out, something happens, someone cuts us off on the road, someone threw up in the car on the way to speak, whatever it is, and everything is thrown off, and now we're griping and we're mad and we're snapping, and we can't do it as hard as we try. And with the best intentions that we have, we just can't do these things. But Jesus came. He is, as those first verses said, he is the one who we have consolation, who we have comfort. We have, he's, he's, he's done these things. It's his mind that we're to imitate. It's his mind that we're to take on. And he came and gave us that example. So then in verse 5, we, we see Paul says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. We have an example to follow here. We have a life to look to. He came in order to do that. He came here to pay our ransom for us. He came here to save us, and he came here also to be an example for us, to walk through these things that we all walk through, that we can know that we have someone who understands and someone who can identify with us and someone who comes alongside us like a parent with their arm around their child when they're hurt or they've gotten into trouble or gone the wrong way or whatever it is, to come alongside is what that consolation means. Come alongside and to call them to the right way. And we have that in Christ. And this word, let, let this mind be in you is not something that just, we just hope will happen. That's an action that's take, take this mind upon you. Let this mind be in you. Take on his attitude. You know, we have verses, uh, the verse of putting off the old man and putting on the new. Those are things for us to do, things for us to choose, to set our mind on the things of Christ. And thankfully, we have in these verses a great picture, an example of what his mind looks like, of what things we need to be taking on and the things that we need to put off of ourselves. So that is a command and an action for us to do, that we can walk in the same spirit of the one who humbled himself to sufferings and death for us. We know from John, it says right here in verse 5, verse 6 actually, sorry, it says, Jesus, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, and we know that he's God. We have John 1, 1 through 5 that says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. 
All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was darkness, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. And in case we're just not sure who and what the word is, in verse 14 of that same chapter, he says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and that is Jesus. He beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Though he was God, when we go back to our verses in Philippians 2 here, though he was God, one with the Father and the Spirit, he was in heaven, as those words said. He was there in the beginning. He was, he was, he was there and in creation, but he did not cling to this. He did not cling to his rightful place when it says that he didn't consider it robbery, robbery to be equal with God. He willingly laid aside those privileges. He didn't become less God. He didn't lose anything of his deity at all. Instead, he just took the rights. We're so big on rights, so big on what we deserve and our privileges and all those things in this country. And his rights and his privileges were above all else. And he chose to lay those aside and to come here as man, as a human. He emptied himself of his rights and he willingly lowered himself to our level. He chose to humble himself and take the lowest form, a human being, adding humanity to himself. So when you think of him in all of the splendor of heaven, on the throne of God, ruling and reigning always, has never known anything else. And for him to lay that aside and come down and take the lowest, the lowest form, we can't, laying those rights aside, laying those privileges, would be like us as humans, what rights and privileges we have as humans to walk about freely, to do whatever it is that we love to do, to go the places that we want to go, to lay down and rest and comfort and, and all those things and lay all that aside, choices, relationships, feelings, emotions, to lay all of that aside and we're just gonna choose to become an ant. And even that is not equivalent to the step down that God took to become a man. He chose to give up all of his rights and advantages. And we can't imagine giving up our rights and advantages of a human even this doesn't compare. Jesus had never had to obey anyone before this. He had all authority over all things, yet he humbled himself in obedience, being born into poverty among a despised people. We know the birth story. It wasn't a glorious, glamorous one at all. He was born as an infant. This life of suffering that he chose to humble himself in obedience and come and live, came as an infant. He could have come as a man. Could have skipped all the submitting to his parents, submitting to authority, sitting and, you know, sitting and learning before other people that were way, way less worthy. He humbly suffered and learned a trade of carpentry as if he didn't already know how to build that. He created the whole, the whole earth. And now he's learning and sitting at someone's feet, learning how to be a carpenter. He humbled himself in suffering by the companions that he chose. The men he chose to walk with him and to be his friends were, were not the, the highest of men. They weren't of prominent stature. They weren't men that got him any kind of reputation that was a good one, any kind of notable recognition at all. 
the audience that he chose to appeal to was another way that he suffered and humbled himself. He suffered ridicule for who he hung with, for the people that he went to, that he took a word to, that he reached and tried to speak to and heal. They were lepers, they were beggars, they were prostitutes, they were thieves and robbers. They were, they were not people that brought him any kind of glory. And then the temptations that he endured as well. Temptations 40 days without food in the desert and in that weak time, having the enemy come and tempt him in, in all manners that we cannot even imagine. We would not be able to stand under it at all. And he humbled in himself. And in obedience, he suffered those things. He suffered weakness. He suffered hunger, thirst, tiredness. He had no place to lay his head, we're told in Matthew. Homeless, dependent on alms of, of people, slept wherever he landed that night. He, in his humility, chose to submit himself to the authority of others, to people not worthy. He submitted himself to parents, to teachers, to the law of the land in which he lived. He endured ridicule and mockery and persecution, humiliation, even being considered cursed, as it says in Galatians. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. He humbled himself in obedience to suffering of the most despised death of all. He's endured every kind of suffering that there is. There is no limit to what God will do to demonstrate his love and saving power to man. We see this, this God that's always been that has made all things and had all power and all authority always come down in the absolute lowest form and then even take on the lowest things of that form. He didn't live the lives that we live here in this room. He chose to live lower because he chose to suffer. He chose to suffer so that he could walk with us in our suffering. He could identify with us in our suffering. These are the verses, these are the things that Paul's referring to in that verse one, the consolation of Christ and the affection of Christ and the comfort of his love. The life he lived and what he chose to do was that he could be that consolation to us, that he could console us because he had endured every kind of suffering that there was. And he knew then exactly what we would need, that he could walk through it with us, that he could shape us and use it and make us more like him. Spurgeon says, I love how he says this, that the lower he stoops to save us, the higher we ought to lift him in our adorning reverence. Blessed be his name, he stoops and stoops and stoops. And when he reaches our level and becomes a man, he still stoops and stoops and stoops lower and deeper yet. From the highest height to the death on a cross, the tremendous plunge he was willing to take for you and me. So Christ's life was one of suffering. He knows well how to console us when we suffer. This is what Paul's referring to in verse 1. He is with us in our suffering. He suffered most of all and knows firsthand what we need. He knows how to be what we need when we need it. He was in the fire with Daniel's friends. He's our rock, our shield, our high tower, our song, our banner, whatever our need be. He knows exactly how to be that. He passes through the fire with us. 
His consolations are unfailing because he humbled himself and was obedient to every kind of suffering. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says of, his, of his, himself, his own sufferings, he says that he, Paul, endured stripes, prison, beatings, stonings. He was shipwrecked. He had perils of waters, perils of robbers, of his own countrymen, of the Gentiles, perils in the city, in the wilderness, in the sea, among false brethren, perils in weariness, sleeplessness, hunger, and thirst, fastings, cold, and nakedness. Yet he knew all his sufferings were really the sufferings of Christ. Christ suffered that and even more. And we can't even imagine. We, we have such comfort here even in our sufferings. Our sufferings are different, but suffering is suffering. Our suffering looks different, but it still is a suffering to us, whatever we're going through. And Christ wants to use that. God wants to use that. He tells us that the righteous and the unrighteous, rain and sun, fall upon them the same. But the difference for us as believers is that there's a purpose. The suffering isn't wasted. The suffering isn't for nothing. God has a purpose for it. And as believers, he takes the suffering. He's walked through everything himself and he knows exactly how to console us, exactly how to come alongside us and to call us into the right way to give us strength and encouragement to continue on through it. And through that, we come out more refined and more holy like him. We come out able to be like that mind of Christ, able to have his mind more so because of how we met him in that, how he met us actually. But So when suffering abounds, consolation also abounds. Jesus wasn't distant from Paul in his suffering. He was right there with him, identifying with him, comforting him. 2 Corinthians 1.5 says, For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. We want our circumstance to change, but God wants to console us right there in the midst of our circumstance. He has a purpose for our sufferings. And we are so blessed and privileged that that, that is so, that he's done that, that he does want to make us more like him, that he has more for us than the things of this world, than to live an empty life, than to live for ourselves and the emptiness that comes along with that. Because of these things we have in Christ, these things Paul referred to in that first verse, he tells us we should put on the mind of Christ. Let this mind be in you. This attitude, this heart that we saw from Jesus, this heart we see from Paul, let this attitude be in us. We have to take it on, laying aside our rights, laying aside our privileges, and being a servant to others, obeying God even to death. We see in that same little section there that, verse 9, that the Father did not leave him there on that cross. He did not leave him there in that suffering, as it says in Psalm 16:10, for you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Because Jesus humbled himself in perfect obedience, the obedience required of us that none of us are capable of doing, God the Father highly exalted him to the highest place of honor, giving him the name above every name, that at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, everyone in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Jesus willingly brought himself low 
he willingly took on the form of man. He willingly set aside his rights and privileges as God. God did not do that for him. He chose that. But then after he endured all that he did, God the Father lifted him up. God the Father crowned him as Lord and placed him on the throne. With his humanity added to his deity, he returned to heaven. From glory to the cross to glory again, he emptied himself. Now let this mind be in you, a willingness to set aside what you are and what you want to pursue, what you think you deserve. Set it all aside as Christ did and become a servant of others. Verses 12, we move, move on down and we see from that, Paul encourages them, as they've always obeyed, to obey even more in his absence, to work out their own salvation, to be concerned with the things of their own salvation, with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. We can't do that with our own mind. So Paul's giving us everything we need to know everything we need to encourage us that we can work out our own salvation, that we can take on this mind of Christ, that we can lay aside ourselves and our own wants, and that we can, in our sufferings, allow the Lord to work in us, to work in us a heart and a desire to want to be these things and do these things. We are to work out our own salvation. And that's not a working for salvation, as some believe that we are to our salvation comes through works. The work, the work of salvation has been done. Jesus already completed that work of salvation, but our salvation is not yet a complete work in us. And that's what Paul is referring to here. Like Aaron covered in Philippians 1.6, being confident of this very thing that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. We are to work it out within ourselves until the day Christ completes it. Christ will do that work in us. He will bring us to this holiness to this completed state. It's not on us to do it ourselves, which is just so awesome and amazing. It sounds so overwhelming hearing this example and seeing this example of what Jesus did and a call to, to live like that. And we know that we can't, but to know that God doesn't leave us with this high call on our own. He says he works in us. By his grace, he works in us what we are to work out. He places his desires in our hearts and he works in us both to will and to do it. Israel failed to keep the law over and over and over, generation after generation after generation. And God told Jeremiah, there will be a day when he will no longer write his law on tablets of stone, but he, was put it, but he would put his law in their minds and write it on their hearts and he has. We're those people. He's done that. He, he works it into our hearts. He gives us the will, and he gives us the ability to do his good pleasure. It's on our hearts as believers. The Holy Spirit does that and continues to do it. He plants the will in our hearts, and he gives us the capacity to do it. Therefore, we are without excuse. What excuse do we have? We have everything that we need what excuse do we have to not do this work that the Lord is continually working in us to do? It's ours to work out. We have to take hold of it. Something else to take note of out of this little section here on working out our own salvation is working out our own salvation. We're so quick to want to look at everyone else's salvation. 
what we know this person needs and that person needs. We're to be concerned with working out our salvation, not our neighbors, not our husbands, not the lady that sits in the back of church and her life's just a mess and, and she just really needs to get things right. Our job is to work out our own salvation and to work it out with fear and trembling. I'm not a traveler. I've probably flown like a handful of times. So I don't even know if this is true, but I've always heard about the little masks that drop down that if you're ever in trouble on a plane and that happens, that you want to be sure you put the mask on yourself first because you can't help others. If you're passed out on the floor, you need to put your mask on first. And that's just what this makes me think of. We can't, we can't help anyone else come to Christ if we don't keep, take care of our salvation first and for ourselves. We can't be a light to people. We can't lay our own interests aside and look at someone who's hurting and come to their, their need and their aid and sit with them and do all that that requires. We're selfish. We're selfish without working out our own salvation. We have to tend and keep to ourselves first regarding our salvation, not in the other things of life, but regarding our salvation so that we can be that light in the world and we can be this love, this one purpose, this one mind to the body, to those hurting around us. So let's keep to our own salvation. Take the gospel to others. We're called to do that, but we've got to, we've got to tend to ourselves first in that area and not be quick to judge everyone else around us and where they ought to be in their walk then he says, to do all things without complaining and disputing, being blameless and harmless, without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. That word harmless there can also be translated as hornless. I just thought this was really neat. He said, so he's saying we are to be people that not only do no harm, like an animal with, without horns, but also one who can't do harm, like a sheep. A sheep will not devour, and a sheep cannot devour. That's contrary to their nature, and so should we be in this world. We should not just not bite people. We shouldn't even have the ability. That shouldn't even be in our nature. We should be hornless, unable to ram, unable to puncture, unable to do harm to people. Behave in such a way that we can't be criticized, that any accusation made against us not stick because of the character that we are known to have. We're to be that, that character in that way in this world. That doesn't mean people won't hurl accusations at us. They will, but we want to live in a way that it won't stick, that the people that know us and have seen us and we've walked alongside in life, they know that's not true of us. That's how Paul says that we are to live. God referred to Israel, this crooked and perverse generation. He actually referred to referred to Israel as a crooked and perverse generation in Deuteronomy 32.5. He said, they've corrupted themselves. They are not his children because of their blemish and perver a perverse and crooked generation. We, we know Israel in the wilderness, complaining all the time, grumbling against God all the time. We don't want to be like a rebellious Israel. We don't want to be complaining and disputing and God looking at us that way. We know, we know what he thinks of that. We read Israel ourselves in the Old Testament and are like, what is wrong with them? No matter what he did, they never trusted he was going to provide the next time they bumped into something. They never were satisfied with what he did do for very long at all. They always were forgetting what he had done, and we don't want to be this perverse and crooked generation. We are lights that shine in the world, Paul says, so we are to shine as lights in this dark world. He didn't say be lights, if we notice that in verse 15, 16, no, 15, sorry. 
He didn't say, be lights. He said, we are lights. We're to shine. What we're to do is to shine. He tells us in Matthew 5, 14 through 16, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light, we already are lights, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Oh, that we would shine bright, that we not be a dim light, that we not be a flicker of a candle, but that we be a bright, big light that causes all darkness to flee, that lights up the whole room, not just a little corner, and that we would hold fast the word of life. Hold fast there actually means hold fast, and it also means hold forth. So we want to hold fast to the word of God. Like Aaron was saying earlier, we want to cling to it. It's so important. We have to have the word every day to hold fast to it. We can't hold tightly to something that we don't have. We can't hold it continually all day long, no matter what we come against, if we don't ever have it. We have to get up and have the word every day, the word of life. Keep it in our minds and our hearts. We're to also hold forth the word of life. Hold it forth to others. Deuteronomy 6, 6, 9, 6 through 9 says, And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And Psalm 113 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bring forth fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither and whatever he does shall prosper. This is the word of life that we are to hold to. This is how we hold to it. We talk of it. We walk in it. We lie down with it. We raise up with it. We cling to it. And it makes us like a tree planted by the rivers of waters, not only for us, but to others. A tree fruitful and a tree that does not wither. Paul didn't want his work and labor to be in vain. If they didn't continue on strong with the Lord, he felt his work, his ministry would be for nothing. He looked forward to the day of Christ and he wanted to see and know on that day that his work would be fruitful. Knowing he could possibly die in prison, he was looking to these things. He's, he's knowing he could die. He's waiting to hear a sentence and find out if he's going to be free, if this, is, if this is it for him. And he's writing to the Philippians, and he is encouraging them. He wants to know that the work he begun is going to continue on, no matter what his state is, no matter what his condition turns out to be. He looked forward to the day of Christ and wanted to see and know that they would be fruitful and knowing he could possibly die in prison being poured out, that's a present tense, being poured out, referring to his possible execution, no doubt. And he was glad to be poured out, he says. Some of the rejoicing, he would be glad and rejoice, and he wanted them to have the same attitude. Again, that's just not something that we can, that we can do on our own. Without having walked through sufferings, without having known Christ the way that he knows him through those things, he couldn't sit through this and know what's coming and rejoice and be glad and ask the Philippians to rejoice and be glad with him. It's only through the work the Lord did in him as he came alongside him in all of the sufferings that he's gone through. 
This chapter closes, the last little bit, 19, and through the end of the chapter, with two really good examples of this life that Paul has exhorted us all to live. Timothy and Epaphroditus, if you know of Timothy, I'm I'm sure. But Timothy was the only one Paul trusted, we see here in, in these passages, to care for the Philippians as he did. He trusted that Paul had his same mind and his same heart towards them. He said Timothy was like-minded and sincerely cared for their state. Most others sought their own, and we know that to be true. We know that even from pastors, from leaders, their own interests, seeking their own credit, their own ease and comfort, their own pleasure. And Timothy was not one of those. He sought the things of Christ. He sought the things of truth, holiness, duty. He sought the things of the kingdom of God. And Timothy had been tried and proven faithful in all circumstances. So the Philippians knew. They, they knew of his story. They knew of his testimony. They knew he had proven himself to them to be faithful as Paul was. He served with Paul in the gospel like a son, learning from his father and taking on his cares as his own. Epaphroditus was a brother to Paul, a fellow worker in the gospel, a fellow soldier in battles. He came along with the work to do with Paul. He had come close to death, not regarding his own life for the work of Christ. He nearly died, taking the Philippians' gift to Paul in prison, a monetary gift, as well as staying there to minister to him. He became so sick that he nearly died, we see here. And Paul had great love for them and for the church of Philippi and selflessly gave up Epaphroditus, who had been tending to him faithfully, And we just see so much love here for each other. We see so much selflessness as Paul sends Epaphroditus back to the Philippians. They're longing for him and he's longing for them because they're so distressed to hear of his state. Such suffering like Paul had, so did Epaphroditus and Timothy. They had experienced the love and comfort and consolation of Christ And they responded with like-mindedness, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. Such lowliness of mind, such esteeming of others above themselves, all the things Paul spoke of in the beginning of this chapter. And we see that in these three men, these three friends. And we know how to do that. We have God's word here 